นโมทัสสะภะคะวะโตอะระหะโตสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะนโมทัสสะภะคะวะโตอะระหะโตสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะนโมทัสสะภะคะวะโตอะระหะโตสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะพุทธังธรรมังสังฆังนามะสังฟิร์สต์ไลค์ทูที่จะบอกว่านี่เป็นครั้งแรกของการปฏิบัติสงฆ์ในปีนี้และฉันจะบอกว่าฉันขอแสดงความเป็นห่วงแก่ทุกคนที่ได้รับการช่วยเหลือจากนี้ในฐานะผู้ที่ช่วยเหลือในฐานะผู้ที่ช่วยเหลือในฐานะผู้ที่ช่วยเหลือในฐานะผู้ที่ช่วยเหลือในฐานะผู้ที่ช่วยเหลือในฐานะผู้ที่ช่วยเหลือในฐานะผู้ที่ช่วยเหลือในฐานะผู้ที่ช่วยเหลือในฐานะผู้ที่ช่วยเหลือในฐานะผู้ที่ช่วยเหลือในฐานะผู้ที่ช่วยเหลือในฐานะผู้ที่ช่วยเหลือในฐานะผู้ที่ช่วยเหลือในฐานะผู้ที่ช่วยเหลือในฐานะผู้We have a new Anagarika in the community, Anagarika Andrew, and welcome. Happy to have you join us and going through this formal going for refuge and taking of the eight precepts in this way, marking the beginning of his training in the monastic community. Uh, for those of you that are new, uh, these uh, fellows in white we call them Anagarikas, or that's the equivalent of. What people would probably understand as a postulate, and and if they want to stay around and uh, commit themselves to more training, well, uh, that will come later and become uh, samaneras or eventually uh, taking the training as a monk. Right? The whole thing generally takes about seven years. Right? Also, being the first Sunday of the month, we uh, traditionally. Take the opportunity to comment on the Dhamma teaching that is presented on the page of our calendar, the calendar we put out each year, and this being the month of April. Those of you that have the calendar and have turned the page will see the quote from Ajahn Chah talking about uh, peace, the conditions that give rise to peace, and so. Ajahnchara is saying that peace arises from truly knowing the nature of all things. In its natural state, our mind is unmoving. If you investigate closely, you can see. And there's a very nice picture of uh, our good friend Ajahn Sudanto, the abbot of the monastery in Pacific Hermitage in in America, uh, sitting in a nice location. In the bush, looking very peaceful. Now, it uh, it would be a mistake to think that uh, the message being given out there is that you can only find peace if you are sitting in idyllic, nice uh, forest locations without irritating people around you, because that sometimes is what. Well, at least that's what I think. If only these irritating people weren't here. I'm not talking about any of you, by the way. Just, uh, <laughs> but uh, in other circumstances, there are times where that's the thought that gives rise to. Uh, and I think, if only these people weren't here, if only I didn't have this pain in my ankle, or if only the heater and the boiler didn't fail. Um, well, that's absolutely not what Ajahn Chah is pointing out. And he, uh, you see the. Versus, peace arises from truly knowing the nature of all things, and and so this is the 
the essence, of course, of, of all the Buddha's teaching, which is that it's knowledge, a particular kind of knowledge or understanding that leads to peace. It's not necessarily getting agreeable circumstances. That's what our mind might come up with. That's what it easily does come up with. And when the conditions are right, then I will feel peaceful. Well, it's sort of true, but as we would all know, that that kind of peace doesn't tend to last because it's only a matter of time before I'm not getting the convenient conditions that I prefer. And when my preferences are frustrated, then I don't feel peaceful anymore. Well, what the Buddha was wanting us to come to see and what Ajahn Chah is pointing out is that it's understanding about experience that makes the difference, not whether our preferences are met. Sometimes the preferences will be met, sometimes they won't. Even for the Buddha, as you, any of you that have read any of his teachings will be aware that even in the Buddha's lifetime he had to put up with all sorts of frustrating situations, irritating, intensely troublesome monks and uh, physical discomfort and yet the Buddha's peace was unshaken and so in the second part of this verse that I was referring to there Arjun Shah is pointing out that in its natural state our mind is unmoving if you investigate closely then you can see so if we're looking for peace which we all are uh, the uh, investigation is the name of the game yeah? and this is an important thing to be aware of and um, I, uh, I expect that uh, the new Anagarika Andrew is sufficiently aware of this that whatever spiritual exercises he or we may choose to take, take up uh, training and concentration and, and sitting still for hours and these spiritual techniques are really uh, in support of creating the kind of conditions in which we can do this investigation that Ajahn Chah is talking about. Yeah? Uh, it's really investigation. It's, it's really asking the right question at the right time that makes a difference because that's what leads to knowledge. That's what leads to understanding. And there's that story in the scriptures in the Buddha's son, Venerable Rahula. And the Buddha points out to him, well, he says to Rahula, he says, what is the purpose of a mirror? And Rahula replies, well, a mirror is for seeing your face in. And so then the Buddha goes on to say, well, so it is that wise reflection is for seeing the mind or for understanding. There's wise reflection that leads to understanding. Yes, concentration exercises, mindfulness exercises, restraint and the various other skills that we might have confidence in and develop, they contribute, but what they primarily contribute to is creating the context, the environment, the, the, the inner atmosphere in which we can ask the right questions at the right time, in the right way, until we see we need to see for understanding the horizon. It's similar to uh, if you want to bake some nice scones, like somebody in the community baked some nice scones this morning. If you're going to bake nice scones, you've got to have the, the temperature in the oven just right. You may have all the nice 
hand-ground wholemeal flour and, and other yummy ingredients and, and good intention and so on. But if the temperature of the oven is not right, it's just not going to work. If it's not hot enough, well, nothing's going to happen. You've still just got glue, basically, which you wouldn't want to eat. If it's too hot, you end up with charcoal, which is not much fun either. But there's a just right amount. And similarly, with the inner atmosphere, the inner environment, there's a just right degree of clarity, of calm. If it's too calm, maybe we just drift off into, into the bliss that comes with calm. If it's not calm enough, then we're basically we're just suffering from confusion. What we're looking for, what we're interested in, is a just good enough level of calm so that when the, that experience hits the heart and disturbs us, and we're troubled by something, we're able, we're ready, we're prepared to ask the right question in the right way at the right time for hopefully, eventually, maybe, understanding to arise. So, so this looking closely is really important. Yeah. So, in Pali, the word is dhammawichaya, uh, investigation of dhamma. And those of you that are familiar with the Buddha's teachings on the seven factors of enlightenment, the Buddha was known as the, the great analyst. He would analyze experience and and uh, then talk about it in terms of cause and effect, very clear, and pointing out the factors that need to be there before the obstruction can pass away and so on. And, and one of the lists that he, he presented is, called, is known as the, the seven factors of enlightenment. The, the first factor is, is this pristine quality of awareness, sati. And the quality of awareness is just right, the next quality that needs to be cultivated is investigation, the inclination to ask questions, to say, what's really going on here? What's really going on here? To see beyond the way things appear to be. You know, Anagarika Andrew here, who, who I'm sure knew how to enjoy himself before he joined the monastery, but still wasn't basically having the understanding that he was looking for. And so now he's made this statement of, giving up music and dancing and holidays in Corfu and because he's interested in asking these questions. And now, the, if you look at the further down the list of the seven factors of enlightenment, you see it talks about bliss, pity, and then tranquility, and then, and then releasing, relaxation, these other agreeable uh, experiences, but they come later. What comes first is the awareness, the pristine, well-prepared quality of awareness, and then the interest to ask the questions. So, so to get this, uh, get this principle down early on in our uh, practice as followers of the Buddha's teaching is really important. And so it's not just uh, making the mind temporarily peaceful, which we might be able to do by having agreeable circumstances, but it's much more than that. It's it's recognizing that there isn't a time and a place to ask sometimes really difficult questions. What's really going on here? Like with something like, for instance, anticipation. Now, when you, 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 you think of enlightened beings and, and Ajahn Chah talking about peace arises from truly knowing the nature of all things, <clears throat> maybe what you think about is, well, enlightened beings, they... 
they they know all about amazing, mysterious, special things. Well, they may do that, but also what they know is the truth of things like greed, anger, delusion. Now, this is what they really know. This is what's really important. This is what this is what characterizes an awakened being. An awakened being is somebody whose consciousness is completely free from all greed, hatred, and delusion. It's not just being able to see into other realms of existence or know all sorts of rare and amazing things, which they may do, but that's that's perhaps not so important. The important thing is, what is the reality of greed? Or what is the reality of something like anticipation? Maybe we've... suffered some loss and experiencing grief or or we have a difficult experience that we have to attend to uh, a difficult medical appointment and and we can really be disturbed by anticipation now if we're interested in finding real peace we don't necessarily just see this anticipation as a problem, we could do that. How can I get over my problem? Put on some music, eat something, get distracted, whatever. Well, the Buddhist solution is no, get interested. What is the reality of anticipation? What is the reality of anticipation? Now, I can still remember many years ago now, like maybe, I don't know, maybe even more than 30 years ago, I'd, um, I'd been invited to to Totnes in Devon, where I was living down in Devon, and I'd been invited to Totnes, I thought, just to meet with a small group of people. But when I arrived there, I was told that I was actually giving a public talk on the Friday night, and uh, all sorts of people were going to turn up, and uh, and quite a, a really nice venue. And And I can remember sitting in my room feeling really unsettled, you know, I wasn't expecting this. I wasn't anticipating this. I wasn't prepared for this. I, this is a public talk. This is quite different from meeting with a small group of meditators for the weekend. But there was a moment where just sitting there on my own, things just fell into place. That's the problem. The problem is actually caught up in anticipation. And when you when you see it, when you really see it with this well-prepared quality of of awareness and the interest in the reality of anticipation, not just distracting ourselves. Our habits of distraction are really profound. I mean, we're so good. I don't know, maybe this is probably human beings have never been so well equipped with distractions as we are now and so good at following them. In all human history, this is probably, I'm speculating, but I think that's probably the case. We're really good at distracting ourselves. It goes with affluence and and lack of uh, uh, wisdom teachings. We tend to think that distraction is somehow a virtue. Well, it's not. It's just like scratching an itch. When the itch is basically a sign that the wound is healing, the itch is part of the healing. You're not supposed to scratch it. But if we haven't learnt that yet, we're busy scratching it and get infected again and We haven't had proper education, so we don't know that scratching the itch is not helping. We don't know that distracting ourselves 
from this experience of limitation, like, for instance, anticipation. We don't know that merely distracting ourselves actually makes it worse. But hopefully we get the teachings and we get the message and then we get interested. Say, oh, right. Well, what's really going on here with this anticipation? What is the reality of this? And if we bring our attention back to projecting into the future and thinking, well, when I get over this anticipation or speculating about the past, why do I always get caught up in anticipation? We bring our attention to this moment to this experience in the body and receive it with interest and we ask the question, what's really going on there? That's a different set of conditions and we can expect probably a different experience and maybe a shift in how we see, how we receive this experience. The same with worry. Worry, the appearance of worry is that we've got to do something about it. Or or in its extreme case, anxiety. Something terrible is going to happen. Something terrible is about to happen. And we've got to do something about it. We've got to fix it. We've got to overcome it. We've got to conquer it. And uh, in the spiritual life, we can similarly come across perhaps less intense or more intense experiences of worry, anxiety, fear and doubt. If we're not interested in the reality of these experiences, if we just look at the surface level, the way they appear, we're busy straining and struggling, trying to get rid of them, when really, if we look closely, as Ajahn Shah was uh, encouraging, investigating closely, maybe what we come to see is, well, sometimes with these conditions, what's really called for is not trying to get over them, trying to get rid of them, but a willingness to patiently bear with them. Again, this is part of our education. I mean, patience, endurance. Whoever taught us these days you know, about patience, endurance? It's just uh, nobody talks about that anymore. But the wisdom teachings do talk about that. And, of course, uh, we've got to be careful how we hear that. What we're really talking about with patient endurance is not... It's not bitter, hard, you know, endurance like, you know, shoulders up round your ears and, and clenched jaw and I'll put up with this if I have to. Uh, uh, it's gentle patience, gentle endurance. But if we don't look closely, we don't, for instance, we don't get to see what works and what doesn't work. And this is often the case with these obstructions that we come across, whether it's in our inner spiritual work or in our outer engaging with the world. If we don't have sufficiently well-developed awareness and this interest to ask the right questions at the right time and the right way, then maybe we don't come to see what's working what's not working. Mm-hmm. And with worry. Yeah. Does feeding it really work or or is it just like putting petrol on a fire petrol looks like water (laughs) but if we put it on the fire of course it's a disaster thinking about our problem you know might be suitable for some obstructions in life some difficulties some problems thinking is what we do but there's other ones which actually thinking doesn't help by clinging to our worry 
by getting caught up in our anxiety, actually we make it work worse. What what helps, for instance, is patience, gentle patience, gentle endurance. So looking closely, investigating closely, coming to see for ourselves and asking the questions at the right time and the right way, how we go about it is also, it's subtle but very significant. Now all of us probably have undergone the conditioning in the early stages of our life where we've been told you know, you've, got to, you've got to pay attention, you know, concentrate, uh, focus. You're such a space cadet, you're such an airhead, pay attention, come on, shape up. You're not going to learn anything that way. And now, if we haven't looked closely at the way we pay attention, like the way we pick something up, if we haven't looked closely and come to see for ourselves, again, we can be making things worse. How we pay attention matters. Just the same way as like how you hold the steering wheel when you're driving matters. If you're holding too tightly, you you get a pain in your shoulders and in your neck and going on a long distance, you can end up being a bad driver. Got your hands on the wheel, but we're holding too tightly. Or if you're using a calligraphy pen or, or a paintbrush or or playing the violin, how you hold the bow matters. When you're playing the piano, how you hold your wrists matters tremendously. Similarly, how we hold attention in our meditation matters tremendously. If it's the case, as it often is, that we, we, um, where something appears in meditation, or where we need to look closely at it to see beyond the way it appears to be to how it actually is. Just also to bear in mind that we're not talking about collapsing our field of awareness. Yes, concentration, yes, focus, yes, pay attention. All of those things that we were told were right, but not in a collapsed way. Maybe we need to ask ourselves the question, how can... How can I concentrate and stay open? How can I hold my meditation object and stay relaxed and receptive? A lot of our holding is exclusive, contracted, tense. And I know my own experience of meditation practice, trying too hard to focus to get somewhere, which is often what was going on. And then when I stop meditating, get up, my eyes are blurry and you kind of barely stand straight. You've been trying too hard. So the kind of effort that we make when we get interested, yes, we get interested, but the kind of effort that we make born out of this interest in seeing the reality of things really matters. And the attitude. As I was just saying there that in the paying attention to something that we feel calls for attention and yet if our attitude is one of 
thinking like, when I get over this, everything's going to be okay. When I get past this, it's going to be all right. Maybe, again, as I mentioned before, maybe something like sadness comes up, some memory of some suffering that we've experienced, and and think, oh, if only I can get over the sadness, it'll be all right. Or not knowing, the experience of not knowing. Not knowing what meditation practice I should do. Should I be practicing concentration? Should I be practicing vipassana? Should I be practicing anapanasati? Should I go with this teacher? Should I go with that teacher? Should I read the Visuddhi Maga? I mean, it just does your head in all of these questions that can come up when you start to find out what's out there. If we get caught up in it, if we're busy trying to get to the goal, we have goals, we all have goals, that's part of the way our minds work, we have goals, but if we're caught up in reaching the goal, we don't see what we're actually doing here and now, which is important. What we're doing here and now is actually we're in a hurry. We're trying to get past something. Well, that's not what Ajahn Chah was talking about. Ajahn Chah was talking about looking closely at what is, looking closely at the mind itself looking closely at the nature of things. That's what the Buddha was talking about and cultivating this pristine awareness. So we have this quality of receptivity of our experience, the joy, the beauty, and the sadness, and the sorrow of life, all of it, how to receive it here and now in a way whereby this interest gets quickened. So we don't get caught up in the compulsive storytelling. Yeah. all the stories that we come up with about what it's going to be like when I don't have this problem anymore, what it's going to be like when this person goes away, or you know, all the, the terrible stories are what it's going to be like when I get really old and you know, it's already bad enough and you get caught up in that one. That's not a nice story. So the habit we have of projecting our attention into the future can be wonderful. It can be a source of, of understanding when we, when we pass, based on past experience, we extrapolate into the future, it can be wonderful. But when we're caught up in it and we're attaching to the idea of the goal, it can again make things a lot worse. So the attitude with which we apply attention is when we're looking closely at things is similarly important. Right time how we go about it, and the right attitude. And of course, it has to be said that we learn by getting it wrong. It's also really important in in our spiritual development that we don't want to get it wrong, we don't try to get it wrong, we try to try our best to not get it wrong, but when we do get it wrong, the willingness to say, oh, yeah, got that wrong. The humility... The humility and the gentleness and the patience, you know, like a parent with a child that is learning to walk or maybe the child is ill and the child doesn't know that, you know, illness like this, although it's awful, good chance it's going to pass, you're going to be okay again, but the child doesn't know that. So what does a parent do? You don't, you know, you can't explain these things when children are very young. You just receive them. You receive them with kindness. That works. With patience, with gentleness, that works. 
So similarly, in our own taking care of our own inner illness, our own inner dysfunction, finding out what works and what doesn't work. You know, if you're too hard on yourself, well, you know, be honest. Well, actually, no, that didn't work. I was trying too hard. You know, being judgmental of ourselves and criticizing ourselves and recognizing, well, no, that doesn't work. And having the agility, the agility to adjust when it's called for. So the uh, message that Ajahn Chah was giving us, that peace arises from truly knowing the nature of all things, and in its natural state, he says, the mind is unmoving. If you investigate closely, you can see for yourself. The message of support and encouragement is not the case that, you know, just because we want to recognize the inherent stillness of of the mind itself, it's going to happen just like that. It's work, but also it's work that's worth doing. We only have a limited amount of energy and a limited amount of time, and what are we going to invest it in? So this work, spiritual work, uh, is really worthwhile. And also, particularly on this occasion of uh, Anagarika Andrew joining the community, uh, wish you well and. I'm sure I speak on behalf of the whole community and encouraging you and and invite you to see us all as your companions and friends on the path and let us know as and when we can be helpful. Thank you very much this evening for your attention. <laughs> Sadhu, sadhu.